This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. What's good, y'all? This is Gene, and it's that time of the year again, the time of the year when you're thinking about giving. You know, getting something nice for your moms or your uncle or your little ones or for bae. Oh, aren't you so sweet? Well, since you're in that spirit right now of giving, consider this a little nudge to give to your local public radio station. If you rock with us at Code Switch, you know how often we turn to the tweets you send us and we turn them into whole segments. You know how often we respond directly to the emails that you send our way. The concerns you have, the questions you want answered, that's all the stuff we want to know too. That's part of the mission of public radio. It's in the DNA of it thoughtful, community-oriented journalism. So when you support your local public radio member station, it goes a long, long way to making our podcasts and other podcasts like it possible. And those member stations can only do what they do because they are supported by listeners just like you. So keep showing your support for your local member stations. Go to donate.npr.org slash codeswitch and give. That's donate.npr.org slash codeswitch. All right, y'all. On with the show. Shreen had cheery pills for breakfast. Oh my God. I'm a little worried. This is Code Switch. I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji. And I'm Karen Grigsby Bates in for Jean. This episode goes out to all our listeners who are always asking us for book recommendations. We've got a bunch of recommendations from some badass folks of color. A civil rights legend. Si se puede. <laughs> Lots of writers. It was a perfect book to like pull out of a slump, a reading slump. And a few podcast hosts. It's a send-up of race in this really smart way and also like a page-turner of a thriller. I love it. You can use this episode as gift-giving inspiration. You can use it as New Year's resolution inspiration. I know I want to read more in 2019 and do way less Netflix binging. Mm. So let's get to it. Our first badass to recommend a few good reads is my co-host for today's episode. That's you, Karen Grigsby-Bates. You're an NPR correspondent and founding member of the Code Switch team. You write our fabulous newsletter on most weeks. But people might not know you're also a published author of both fiction and nonfiction books. Yeah, it's true. I wrote an etiquette book that's still in use and a couple of mystery novels featuring a smart-ass reporter named Alex Powell, who, thank you very much, bears no resemblance to me whatsoever. I've read both those novels. Alex Powell is Karen Grigsby Bates. Nope. <laughs> nope, nope. And anyway, you read more than anyone I know. And I just want to know, how many books have you read this year? You know what? I was trying to figure that out after you asked me that yesterday. And the honest answer is, I don't know. It's like about a book a week and then some other stuff thrown in there. So I would think inching into the three figures. Three figures, like Mm -hmm. 100 books. Well, they're not all super long books. That's insane. You're making me feel bad. <laughs> don't. don't. I'm going to start binging Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you need to do. We need to flip goals. There we go. So we asked you to pick three of those hundred and some odd books that you read that really stood out to you. Right. And so let's start with a novel folks may have heard a lot about. Essie Idujan, a Canadian of Nigerian ancestry, has written a fine book about slavery and freedom, identity and love called Washington Black. Washington Black made the New York Times book reviews 10 best books of 2018. 
which is pretty great. Um, regardless, I can hear people saying, I'm sure it's a wonderful book, but I don't have the mental wherewithal to read or gift a book that sounds like it might be about pain and misery. Well, there is pain and misery there, but this is different. For one thing, the writing is gorgeous. To just do a quick recap, George Washington Black is an 11-year-old enslaved boy who works on a plantation, ironically named Faith. Uh, Faith is a sugar plantation on the West Indian island of Barbados, and you'll probably remember from your history classes that growing and processing sugarcane is some of the most brutal agricultural work ever. It was then, still is. But Wash's life changes when the plantation owner's younger brother arrives with what he calls a cloud cutter. I'm not familiar with that term. What is that? It's what he calls a hot air balloon, and people hadn't seen it. This takes place in the mid-1800s, so people were like, what is that thing? Uh, And after something cataclysmic happens... Wait, no spoilers. I promise, no spoilers. (laughs) And this happens very early on in the book. Uh, So after something cataclysmic happens on Faith, Wash and his benefactor escape via the cloud cutter, and that's only the beginning of their adventures in this book. Wash is free, but not really. And Adujan talked about this with NPR earlier this year. What I really wanted to explore was his life post-slavery and to show how by being physically free, we think of that as being kind of the end of slavery. Well, he's not in chains, he's gotten away, he's physically free. But I really think that, you know, there had to be huge psychological ramifications to having been a slave, even while you're free in body that obviously you're carrying with you a great trauma and probably a a great sense of bewilderment about your place in the world. And I really wanted to express that. Adjujin expresses this with a kind of subtle simplicity that sneaks up on you. There are a lot of passages here that describe the sacrifices we often make for love. You know, romantic love, filial love, friendship, even when we don't consciously know that we're doing it. And even though this is set in the mid-1800s, there is a lot that resonates about race today Mm -hmm. in this book, and people need to read it. All right, so that's book number one, Washington Black by Essie Dujan. What do you have next? It's a big biography about Arthur Ashe. The legendary tennis player and humanitarian. Yep. This big book by historian Raymond Arsenault is called Arthur Ashe, A Life, and it goes from Ashe's birth and childhood in segregated Richmond, Virginia, to the global figure we knew he was at his death. At age 49. I know, isn't that something? That seems so much younger than I remember now that I keep getting older. (laughs) We have caught up and passed him. I have. You have not. Um, Don't age me, Bates. Yeah, and it does. You know, Ash died of complications from AIDS, which he had contracted when he got a tainted blood transfusion from one of the many heart surgeries he had had to undergo. And this was before blood was being screened for AIDS and HIV, so it was just Mm -hmm. bad luck. He was a tennis prodigy, and as he got more prominent, the struggle for racial equality was moving to the nation's front burner. He was virtually the only black person in the very white sport of elite tennis back in the early to mid-60s, and he was acutely conscious of that and not politically involved. Hmm. And his dad, who was pretty conservative, had warned him not to be. He told him, stay away from that civil rights mess. Here's the book's author, Ray Arsenault. In the critical, tumultuous year of 1968, Uh, He came to sort of political maturity, the guilt that he felt when he was striking, you know, all white tennis balls at country clubs and on the tour. uh, Other black children were were braving the water hoses and 
tack dogs in Birmingham, and he, and he said, as my fame grew, so did my anguish. And by 1968, Shireen, he was starting to protest the war in Vietnam, which was interesting because he actually served in the Army for two years, although not abroad. Um, His post was up at West Point. His brother Johnny was already in Vietnam, and he extended his tour so Arthur wouldn't be sent. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that was something Arthur says he didn't realize until many, many years later because Johnny didn't talk about it. Uh, It was an amazing gift. Arthur said that he owed his brother forever for that. You know, I remember learning about his humanitarian work in college, um, specifically what he did to speak out against apartheid in South Africa. Yeah, so much so that when Nelson Mandela made his first trip to the U.S. in 1990 after he was finally released from prison for good, the people putting together what was essentially a rock tour for him asked if there was anyone he especially wanted to meet, and he said one name. Arthur Ashe? Exactly. (laughs) In fact, the two of them had a friendship that lasted until Ashe's death, and that's how important a humanitarian Ashe was. Mm. In fact... He advocated for, or he was, advocating for Haitian immigrants like a couple of weeks before he died. And he wanted the U.S. to treat them the same way they treated Cubans. That's book number two, a biography, Arthur Ashe, A Life by Raymond Arsenault. And your last recommendation, Bates, is a poetry book. Yeah, from one hella busy man. (laughs) Poet Kevin Young is head of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, and he's the poetry editor of The New Yorker, and he teaches and writes poetry on the regular. And we've had Kevin on the podcast before. He has a poem called Ode to Chitlins. (laughs) He read that for us, and I'm not a big fan of chitlins, but I do love that Kevin Young poem, and I'm really excited to hear about his new book. (laughs) You can read about them, you don't want to eat them, right? That's right. (laughs) Well, this book is called Brown, and Kevin says it's not just about the color brown, but about brown people, James Brown, Brown v. Board of Ed, basically different aspects of black American life. Here he's reading a sonnet called A Roller Skating Gem Named Saturdays, and it's about how he and his friends were coming of age at a transitional time, both in their personal timelines and their cultural awareness. We were black then, not yet African-American, so we danced every chance we could get. Thursday and Saturdays, we'd chant, the roof, the roof, the roof is on fire, we don't need no water, and folks' perms began to turn. Mm, what Kevin perfect Young. image, right? <laughs> I love that. He reminds me how much I actually do love poetry. Yeah, and Kevin says a lot of people don't love poetry because they were either forced to learn it when they were little or they were hooked up with the wrong poems. And he knows there are a lot of people who go, <laughs> when mm. you say poetry, but he has something to say about that. Think of it more like music. Like if someone said, I don't like any music, I would be like, who are you? I don't understand. They haven't heard the right music to me then. And so I think we have to help the people uh, find the right poem for them. This was definitely the right book of poems for me. And it's book number three, a book of poetry called Brown by Kevin Young. Karen, you wrote about all these books, all three of them, for NPR's Book Concierge. And if y'all don't know what that is, you should. Karen, explain, please. Oh, people, you got to take a look at this. It's an interactive survey of more than 300 books published over 2018 that the NPR Books team put together. Some of us staff people made contributions, also our reviewers, some experts in certain subjects like cookbooks and sports. All genres are represented. There's something for everybody, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, biography even romance. So just go to apps, that's A-P-P-S, apps, 
www.npr.org. And we've got so many more book recommendations for you after the break from readers and writers and podcast hosts like the co-hosts of Nancy, the podcast that explores queer issues. They talk a lot about race, too. Here's Nancy host Tobin Lowe. I, like, unintentionally slash intentionally have been on a kick this year of reading fiction books by Asian women authors. We've got recommendations for fiction and nonfiction. And it's not all new books. We've got some oldies but goodies, too. Here's the Nancy Podcast's other host, Kathy Tu. I would like to recommend a book that I read possibly a decade ago. So stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from CLR Bath & Kitchen, making cleaning the bathroom and kitchen easy without phosphates, ammonia, or bleach. It even carries the EPA's Safer Choice seal. CLR, making the world a little cleaner. Support also comes from the YMCA, who believes the zip code you're born into shouldn't determine your destiny, and that every kid deserves a chance no matter where they're from. Learn about the impact of your donation at ymca.net slash for a better us. Ever get to Friday, look back on the week, and say to yourself, what just happened? I'm Sam Sanders. Check out my podcast, It's Been a Minute, where every Friday we catch up on the news and the culture of the week and try to make sense of it all. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. Karen. Shireen. Code Switch. Hello, I'm Adrian Keene. I am a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and currently a assistant professor at Brown University. And I'm the author of Native Appropriations, a blog that discusses representations of Native people in popular culture. A book I recommend is The Marrow Thieves by Cherie Demeline, who is a Métis author from Canada. It's about a world post-global warming where non-Native folks have lost the ability to dream and Native people hold the key to that in their bone marrow. So they are being kind of hunted for their bone marrow. And it's really, uh, really good and really powerful. Whoa. I want to read that. It's going on the list. In case you missed it, that's The Marrow Thieves by Cherie Demeline. It's a young adult novel set in a dystopian future. And let's keep going with this young adult theme. Our next recommendation is from the writer Shanti Sacred. She wrote the novel Lucky Boy. It's about race and class and immigration and these two moms who want the very best for this beautiful little boy. It Ah, that book was so good. I couldn't stop thinking about it after I read it. It's a favorite. I really love that book. And now that we've told you a little bit about Shanti's book, here's Shanti's book recommendation. Right now I'm reading a YA novel called American Street by Ibiza Boy, and it's great. It tells a story of Fabiola. She's a teenager who's just arrived in Detroit from Haiti to live with her aunt and cousins. Her mother was held back at the airport and put in immigrant detention. And so Fabi is left to face this new American life and a new school and new everything. She's living with relatives who love her but aren't going to coddle her. So she's basically just got to jump into this new life and go. Mm. I love that, that description of relatives who love her but aren't going to coddle her because that tells you something right there. The book is American Street by Ibi Saboy, and our last YA recommendation is from Min Jin Lee, the author of another book that I absolutely loved called Pachinko. 
Yeah, Pachinko is a sweeping epic of a multi-generational Korean family who emigrate to Japan and endure all kinds of hardships as a despised minority. It's got everything, history, race. Unrequited love. Uh It begins with a forbidden love affair, and it's one of my favorite books of all time. Okay, it's obvious we loved Min Jin Lee's book. Now it's time for Min Jin Lee's book recommendation. It is Where the Dead Sit Talking by Brandon Hobson. And Hobson's A Citizen of the Cherokee Nation. It's an extraordinary book, and it's about a young boy named Sequoia who is in the foster care system when his mother is put in jail. And I was really struck by the significance of the story that he's telling about what it's like to be a modern indigenous person in this country and to be in the foster care system. It's really well written. It's very propulsive. It's very readable for literary fiction. And I would recommend it heartily to book clubs. That book is Where the Dead Sit Talking by Brandon Hobson. And we're grouping these together for y'all. That was our YA section. Now we're going to turn to books recommended by some podcast hosts we love. And it turns out that we got the same book recommendation from two very different hosts. First up. My name is Sam Sanders. I host It's Been a Minute. I am recommending a book by an author named Danzy Sinna, and it's called New People. I read that. I've read most of Danzy's books, and she's a terrific writer. I would say this is about angst amongst millennials of color. And while I like the story, I don't like any of the people in it. (laughs) Maybe it's just because I'm old and grumpy. Well, here's millennial of color Sam Sanders again. It's really intense. It follows this character named Maria, who is biracial, who is uh, about to be married to another mixed-race man, but then she falls in love with someone else. And throughout the book, Maria's character really unpacks this idea of, like, the magical mixed-race person that can bring the country together and push us to a new future and kind of proves that mixed-race people can be just as crazy and awful as the rest of us. It's both funny and weird and harrowing um, in its description of, of people who work together because they feel they're supposed to be together in a, in a, in a way of like uh, external pressures or the way they look together. That's Daniel Alarcón. He's host of the Radio Ambulante podcast. He also recommended the novel New People by Danzi Sena. Danielle is an incredible writer himself. Um, his most recent book is a collection of short stories called The King is Always Above the People. And it deals with young men trying to come to terms with immigration and alienation. And Danielle told me he was in a total reading slump this year because he felt like he had to read all the literary classics that everyone told him he should have read a long time ago. So he was slogging through all those. He was feeling really uninspired. And then someone recommended New People. And uh, it was a perfect book to like pull out of a slump, a reading slump. Um, I read it in a day. Uh, I think I got it at like two in the afternoon. I finished it at like two in the morning. Mm. I mean, I've read a lot of classics, a lot of things that are part of the Western canon of dead white men and women that, you know, school always wants you to uh, wants you to learn and examine. But I cannot imagine as a person of color voluntarily reading them exclusively for a year. I'd have to have something as a contrast, you know, some kind of mental or cultural palate cleanser to keep myself sane. Yeah, Danielle said he forgot that reading was supposed to be joyful, and this novel was just a great reminder. Yeah, it's the perfect antidote to something like Ethan Frome. Our next two recommendations are from the hosts of WNYC's Nancy podcast. Here's Tobin Lowe. The one I'm going to recommend is Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. 
Um, It's about a mother-daughter who move into a property that's owned by this white family in Shaker Heights, Ohio. I think one of the things that I like about it is I tend to like books where maybe the exterior drama is not this huge thing that's happening, but it's a lot about interior transformations and sort of what someone's inner life is doing and how they're changing. Little Fires Everywhere is like a great example of just like a kind of small human drama, but none of the turns were expected. I kind of didn't know what was going to happen. And as soon as I finished it, I went on Amazon and purchased a copy for my mom and sent it to her. My name is Kathy Too, and I am a co-host of the podcast Nancy from WNYC Studios. I would like to recommend a book that I read possibly a decade ago. It's called First They Killed My Father by Luang Ung, and it's about her as a child surviving the killing fields during Pol Pot's reign in the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. It's written from Luang's five-year-old self because she was five, I think it's like five to ten when she was surviving killing fields and her parents were killed and some of her siblings were killed. And it was one of the first books I read where I truly felt like maybe human rights is a thing that I'm going to pursue one day. Those books were Little Fires Everywhere, a novel by Celeste Ng, and the memoir by Luang Ung, First They Killed My Father. I think this is the perfect transition to our next two recommenders. Both are human rights activists and organizers. The first one's been in the game for a long time. She's in her late 80s. My name is Dolores Huerta, and I'm a, a, a book lover. I'm a, actually a bookaholic, I call myself, because <laughs> I, I just love to read. Uh, one of the books I like to recommend, it's an old book, uh, but it's called Confessions of an Economic Hitman. It lays out the corporation's plans of how they take over the economies of other countries. This book tells about a man who actually worked for corporations uh, to carry out this economic colonization of countries. If the leaders of the countries would uh, not cooperate, they would just kill him. The book is Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins. And our next recommendation is from a young activist. She's in her late 20s, and you may not have heard of her yet. My name is Amanda Wynn, and my pronouns are she and her and hers. Amanda founded the civil rights organization RISE. She's a Nobel Peace Prize nominee for the work she's been doing to pass a sexual assault survivor's bill of rights in all 50 states. It's legislation that'll keep rape kits from being destroyed before the statute of limitations is up. And it makes sure survivors don't have to pay for their kits or pay to know the results once those kits are tested. Amanda, she's a survivor herself, and her organization has helped pass 19 of these bills in 18 months here in the U.S., all unanimously. RISE is trying to pass a worldwide Survivor Bill of Rights, a United Nations General Assembly resolution, because the United Nations General Assembly has never recognized rape in and of itself as its own issue. Rape has always been a subcategory. And uh, to work on this United Nations General Assembly resolution, I um, read Sex and World Peace. Sex and World Peace talks about how world peace cannot be achieved without granting women equality and how it's extraordinarily interlinked. That's Sex and World Peace. I love that title. (laughs) It's a book written by four academics. The authors, they argue in the book that gender inequality is a form of violence. And you know what? Just thinking about reading this book is 
is starting to make me mad. <laughs> well, our next recommendation is for a book that might help you channel that anger, okay? And it comes from Jean Guerrero, the author of Crux, a cross-border memoir. And Jean's also a reporter who covers immigration in San Diego. She picked Rage Becomes Her by Soraya Shamali. What really resonated with me about this book is this idea that women should be allowed to express their anger, um, which is something that I feel, particularly in Latin American families and communities, we're so often encouraged to silence that anger and, and to continually extend empathy and understanding to the men in our lives and not to do that to ourselves and to the women in our families. And I just think that Soraya goes into this incredible detail, citing, you know, scientific studies and, and different works of literature that really convey the necessity of female anger, not only for the health of women, but also for, for the health of society. If anyone wants to buy me this book for Christmas, I'm putting it on my list. You're going to throttle them if you don't get it, right? Still That's angry. Right. That's Rage Becomes Her by Soraya Shamali. It's a great gift for all the pissed off aunties in your life and Titi Shireen. <laughs> and our final book suggestion comes from the novelist Tayari Jones, whose book An American Marriage got a lot of attention last year. It was long listed for a National Book Award. I want to recommend Becoming the Memoir by Michelle Obama. That book was a really easy read in that Michelle Obama writes like she talks. Hmm. You know, lots of people who do memoirs, all of a sudden you're reading this and it's like, who is this person? That's not the person I you know, saw and about. She sounds exactly like she sounds when you see her in other venues. And I thought it just flowed. And one of the big takeaways for me was that when she finally realized her life would only start getting better, because she was juggling a lot. You know, her husband was a rising political star. She had two little girls. She was making the big bucks in the family, so mm -hmm. she was responsible for, you know, supporting everything and making sure she could shine. Um, she said she realized her life would start to get better when she began to, as she says, push myself up on the priority list. So make it mandatory to work out if that made her feel less tired at the end of the day. Ask for help with childcare. Say no to some stuff because people will ask you for things endlessly if you don't. Truth. Yeah. And she said these things kept her healthy and sane. And you don't have to be the first lady of the United States to do this. The former floatist wants all women to push themselves up on their priority lists. And Tayari says that kind of straight talk really appealed to her. And that's the beauty of this book. It feels at once extraordinary, but also very familiar. The book is Becoming by Michelle Obama, a memoir. Okay, so we have these piles of books. Mm -hmm. Everybody and their <laughs> mother just about has recommended something except for the person sitting across from me. So you have a book, Shireen, or are you going to try to slide out of here? No, I do. I have a book. Okay. It's a gorgeous coffee table book that I can't stop looking through. It unfortunately has a title that's not as exciting as what's inside oh, no. <laughs> the book. Um, so everyone, don't judge it by its title. It's called Bruce W. Tolleman Soul, R&B, and Funk Photographs, 1972 to 1982. I agree. That's a terrible, <laughs> awkward title, but publishers, what are you going to do? We have to say, Bruce is your husband, Karen, so yeah, why I didn't you tell him? I have to say that, too. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's not why I love the book. It's not because 
Bruce's Karen's husband. I love it because there are these incredible photos of the folks who made the songs that I've danced to, that I've cried to, that I've sang at the top of my lungs to. Earth, Wind & Fire is in this book. Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, Rick James. <clears throat> There's this absolutely gorgeous portrait of a young Aretha Franklin that just takes your breath away in this book. I have the chills right now just thinking about it. Anyway, Bruce's Access the Artists was amazing. And there's these exciting concert photos from kind of like the wings of the stage. And then there's these really intimate behind the scenes pictures. There's 300 photos in this book. Uh Uh-huh. And most of those 300 photos are spread out on my dining room table still, the living room floor, the sofa bed, and the guest room. We did not entertain at home for three years. So you hear that, Bruce? Pick your stuff up (laughs) so I can invite people over to dinner. I will take some of those prints. Okay. We have some blank walls at home that I would love to put those on. Let us see if we can help us. uh. All right. We're going to go out with Shaka Khan and her band Rufus for the song Giving Us Life. Um, It's a song written by Stevie Wonder called Tell Me Something Good. And Bruce likes to say his camera had a love affair with Shaka Khan. Tell me something good Tell me that you love me, yeah Tell me something good Tell me that you like it, yeah Mm, That song is so funky! And that's our show. We couldn't fit all our recommendations into the pod, so we'll have more for you on the Code Switch blog. Please follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. Karen's at Karen Bates, and I'm at Radio Mirage. And you know we love hearing from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. You can send us your tricky questions about race with the subject line, Ask Code Switch. Sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash code switch. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already. You can find it mostly everywhere. A big shout out to the folks at TED Women. That's where I got to talk with Dolores Huerta and Amanda Wynn. It was a very inspiring TED Women event this year. This episode was edited by Sammy Yanigan and produced by Kamari Devarajan with help from our fabulous intern Andrea Henderson and Kat Chow. And speaking of Kat, bye Kat. She's going away for a little while to work on her own book. Shout out to the rest of the Code Switch fam, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Leah Danella, Adrian Florido, Steve Drummond, and my co-host, Jean Demby. Maya Waina is our Croc Fellow, and I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji. I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates. Be easy. Peace. Hey, y'all, this is just a reminder to donate. Keep showing your support for your local member station. Go to donate.npr.org slash code switch and give. That's donate.npr.org slash code switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. 
Find us wherever you get your podcasts. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.